I'm glad you're here today, and I hope you had a, a good week. Um, well, let's get in the message. We we're, we're started a series last week. It's called Spirit Life, and this is the second of three. Um, John 6, 63. It's like our springboard for the series. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, this is Jesus speaking, their spirit and their life. That's actually the outline of my series. Um, Last week we looked at the first phrase. Um, It's the spirit who gives life. We talked about the kind of life the spirit gives. It's a certain kind of life. It's a spiritual life. It's a life that comes no other way. Only by the spirit of God. Which which tells us that this, this spirit life is only available to Christians. It's only available to believers. You have a quality, you have a kind, you have a type of life that you're living. If, if you're a Christian today, you're, you're living a kind of life that's, that's not common, that's not normal, that's, that's not worldly. It comes from another place and it comes from a resource inside of you that the Holy Spirit himself has brought to you and birthed in you. This spirit life is the infusion of the human spirit with the Holy Spirit and the interaction that that the Holy Spirit and our spirit have together, the, the working together. And then out of that interaction, our soul is guided on on how to choose, how to think, how to feel. Our consciousness is washed by the activity of this spirit man inside of us, this inner being that Paul, if you were here last week, Paul uh, refers to it as. It, it's, it's the life that God designed and created us to have in the beginning. It's the life and kind of life that Adam and Eve walked in with, with perfection. A kind of life that we can't fully imagine their life because even though we've been born again, we still live in a fallen world. I think we're all aware of that, right? That's not new information for anybody. So, so that's this spirit life that we've been talking about. And, and I mentioned last week that that, that part of you, that, that spirit inside of you, that spirit-soul interaction, that's the most important thing about you. That's the most important thing about your life, this this spirit man that lives inside of you. It's that interaction between spirit and soul that answers all the questions and determines all the actions you'll move and operate in in life. Who, what, when, where, how, why. It's that interaction that's going to answer those questions. It's that interaction that's going to direct and guide you on how to respond to the circumstances and events and occurrences in life, whether they're good or bad, whether they're planned or surprises. Our life, we live and move and have our being from that place, from that place inside of us. It's, It's also why, because we are created in that design, it's also why sin is so devastating. Because sin breaks that cycle. Sin breaks that interaction. 
We, we say, theologians refer to um, what happened in the garden when man sinned as that our spirit died. Okay? That's not inaccurate, but it, it gives a little bit of a false, uh, of a false um, definition. Uh, what really happened is our spirit died to God. We were no longer that connection, that, that human spirit, spirit of God, Holy Spirit interaction was broken. That relationship was severed. We, we lost the ability to discern God. We lost the ability to correctly identify and understand God because this spirit life no longer existed inside of us. The habitation that we had with the Holy Spirit was, was severed. And man hasn't been the same since. Human nature was fractured. And it's a long road back. Once we know Christ, there's still a ways to go. And as far as recovery from what happened in the garden, that sin nature that took over, that selfish nature that began to dominate and control and through which we then began to live our lives. The sin nature doesn't make us bad people. It's what's confusing a lot of times to young Christians is sometimes they know people who don't know Jesus and they're nicer than the people who do. Sin didn't make us bad people. It's worse than that. Sin made us condemned people. You understand that? Sin put us under its curse. And you could be a really nice person, but be under the curse of sin. You can do really nice things and be under the curse of sin. That's the devastation that happened in the garden. And because all have sinned, we're all born under that curse. We, we all, from, from conception, we were all under that curse because of the fall. Now, let's fast forward. Okay, um, sin happens in the garden. Throughout the Old Testament, you see God trying to do his best to, to reconcile with man. God didn't give up on us, thank God. He keeps trying to reconcile. And so we see the covenants throughout the Old Testament. There was the Adamic covenant, of course, that Adam broke. Then with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then his... Isaac and Jacob, the covenant always renewed, the Davidic covenant. God always trying to reach out to get us reconciled, and we just couldn't do it. We just couldn't make it happen. We couldn't stay in that place. And so we come to this, this new moment in human history. It, it's, it's at the beginning of what we call the New Testament in your Bible, the incarnation of Christ. This phenomenal thing happens. God sends himself to make payment of himself to himself so he could win us back for himself. Anyone want to say thank you? Hallelujah. God did it all. And in doing so, he broke as a human being, as a man, he broke the curse of sin. He lived a sinless life. 
And he broke the curse of sin and not only just hold, held it to himself through his life, his death, his resurrection. He didn't just benefit. But he said, now, whosoever. Who will, whosoever will come, whoever will believe in me, whoever will believe what I've said and what I've done. Whoever will ask me to come in and reconnect with them. To, I will birth in them again that spirit life that they once had. I'll restore that connection that I will put my Holy Spirit not just with them, but in them. And once again, we can be alive and are alive to the voice of God, the presence of God, the movement of God, the activity of God in our life. We have spirit life. We said last week that we were, by creative design, we were a spirit with a soul living in a body. And sin didn't change that. It's just that it was a dead spirit that we were then living with, an inactive spirit. But once again, now in Christ, we're restored. Our spirit is made alive with him. Once again, we have interaction with the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us and directs us. And we can now know God again. We can hear a God again. We can, we can um, be in relationship with God again. The curse of sin is broken as we put our faith in him. That dead spirit inside of us comes alive. The Holy Spirit inhabits us again. We're born again. We're recreated. Our nature is recreated back in the one that aligns more and more with his nature. All right? That, that was a flyby of last Sunday. I encourage you just, you can go back and get the, watch the video if you want. I want to look at the second part of that, of that verse, John, in John 6. The spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Anyone want to say amen? <laughs> the flesh is no help at all. If you've been a Christian more than six and a half seconds, you know that. You know that. Spirit life has been given to us. As we give our hearts to the Lord, when we receive his gift of salvation, our spirit comes alive. But it doesn't take us all the way back to the garden. We don't end up in this place of perfection. We don't end up in this place where, where you know, that God designed at the beginning for before sin. We, we have a new nature. But our, our lives have come alive to Christ. But there's this thing called the flesh. And we're not talking about physicality. We're not talking about your body. When, now, when the Bible, and, and you have to look at context. When you read the Bible, the flesh will be used in different ways. Sometimes it does refer to the physical body. Jesus died in the flesh. He died physically. His body died. But oftentimes, and in the context of our message today, it refers to our old nature. It refers to the fallen nature. It refers, refers back to that sinful nature in which we were all created. It's, it's the residue. Maybe that's a good way to describe our, our flesh as, that the Bible's talking about. It's the residue of our sinful nature. It's the memories of our sinful nature. It's the part of us that still wants to, that started this problem in the whole, at the beginning, who wants its own way. It's a part of us that just wants to, to have it our way all the time. And, and bad news, we all have flesh. 
I don't care if you're a brand new Christian or if you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years. You got flesh. There's this thing called the flesh. And, you, and the trick is you know it. And, and I know it. That old, that old nature that, that just keeps wanting to present itself again. Now, it's, the good news, it's not as powerful as your new nature. Your old nature is not as powerful as the life of Christ that's in you, which is good news because it means that sin doesn't have to have dominion in your life. Sin is defeatable and has been defeated on your behalf, but we do have to walk in it. The, the old nature has been dealt with, but it doesn't go away. We have a new nature, but our old nature, and you'll understand this when I say it, it has a big mouth and a long memory. And it whispers to us. And sometimes it shouts at us. But it does what the old sinful nature does. It does what sin does. It lies. It deceives. It tries to trip up, to trick. It, it makes the past look good. The, the, our old nature has this memory that it tries to project on us. That, oh, that was a good thing. Yeah, some of that stuff you did was really, really bad. But this one thing, that's okay. It's all right. And wants to keep bringing back into present tense a life that doesn't really exist and shouldn't really exist in us anymore. That's why Jesus said, your flesh, listen, not only your flesh is no help, it's dangerous. Your, your, listen, if your, if your spirit life is the most important thing about you, your flesh is the most dangerous thing about you. You want to own it? It's okay. Don't get silent. Don't get nervous. Don't get anxious. We're talking about all of us. Okay? This, this is true of every single one of us, and it's dangerous. And if we don't recognize that, if we don't own that, we're going to be victims to it. Okay, we're, we're making ourselves vulnerable to the deception of our flesh, to the lies of our flesh. Th this flesh, all right? It, it's so today, the message today, if I had to give it a title, which I do, and I'm doing that. The battle we all fight. I want to talk about the battle that we all fight, dealing with this thing called the flesh, all right? Father, be with us today as we look into your word. God, I just pray that you would guard my words. I pray you would open the hearts and the minds and the ears of your people. Help us to hear from you. Holy Spirit, this is your time. And I pray you help every one of us lay aside all the things that could crowd into our minds. Put, put a... a just a hedge of protection around us so that we can stay focused on not even what I'm saying, but what you have to say to each individual through this time. So that, Lord, we, we can grow more in you and we can be better equipped to live out this wonderful life that you've put in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Um, history proves something. There's, there's all kinds of illustrations. And the point is this. Wars seldom end cleanly. There's many stories of, of wars that end, but not all the fighting stopped at that moment. One of the perhaps best illustrations that I was able to find uh, was about World War II. There was a lieutenant in the Imperial Japanese um, Intelligence Department. His name was Hiro Onoda. All right, and he was sent to an island, Lubang Island in the Philippines during World War II. His orders were simple, to do everything he can to keep the enemy, which to him was the United States and the Philippine army, to keep them from occupying that island. And largely the best strategy was to, to keep the airfield disabled and to, there was a harbor to keep the pier in the harbor unusable. Okay, that, that was his assignment. And, and his orders also included uh, a, a statement that says under no circumstance was he to ever stop fighting or to take his own life. Those are his orders. And being a diligent soldier, he finds himself on this island in the Philippines. But when he arrived, he found out he wasn't the ranking officer. There were some officers who ranked higher than him. And so he wasn't able to really give full import to following out his orders because he had to stay, you know, follow the, the rank and file. And, and, and so he was under orders himself. So he wasn't able in, initially to, to do much. Um, eventually, because his, the officers over him didn't carry out those strategies, maybe they didn't have the same orders, I, I'm not sure, certain, but within a short time, the, the U.S. and Filipino armies took over the island. They were able to, to take the island. And in a short period of time from that, the, the Japanese army that was present on the island, most of them had either been killed or many of them just, just surrendered. They, they just gave up because of the overwhelming forces. Except Hiro and three friends. See, by, by, and when this happened, it changed the dynamic. Because once all these other guys were gone, he finds that he's the highest ranking officer. He's in charge. And he tells, he tells his guys, wasn't a big group. He says, we're going to the hills. And, and, and he's determined he's going to carry out his orders. He's going to complete the assignment that he was sent to do. And so they, they, go, to the, they go to the hills. And we know World War II and on September 2nd, 1945, the war ends. Peace is declared. And one of the things that was done in order to try to, to get the fighting to stop over the islands, the, they airdropped um, leaflets making the announcement of what happened and what the arrangements were, what the, what the armistice agreement was all about. And, and of course, Hero and his group, they, they, got these, they got these leaflets that fell out of the sky. Um, and he looked at it, and he studied it, and he examined it, and they talked about it. And at the end of the day, they decided this was a strategy of the enemy. We're not buying it. This isn't 
this isn't true. We're, we're not going to fall. We're not going to give up. And then over time, as they're running their little raids and doing all these different things, his other friends, one of them was killed, and two of them were captured. So he's by himself. And Lieutenant Onoda carried on his fight for the next 29 years on this little island occupied by the enemy. He keeps carrying on his fight as best he can, trying to disrupt everything he possibly could. In fact, it took Japan to, um, to call back into service temporarily Onoda's commanding officer. And they had to send him to this island, and he had to find this lieutenant and relieve him of his duty. I tell you this story for one purpose. That Lieutenant Hiro Onoda, that's your flesh. That's your flesh. Christ comes in and he declares peace over your life. But your flesh won't buy it. Your flesh won't go along with it. And your flesh keeps fighting. Okay, you got the picture? Now, the New Testament tells us good news. And the good news it brings us is the war is over. Amen. The war is over. But we have to recognize the right war. Sometimes we, when we hear that, we think, well, yeah, in the New Testament, what happened is the war between God and Satan, that was resolved once and for all. Wrong. Would it bother your theology if I said there never was a war between God and Satan? I know, Isaiah 14. I know. I, I, I read it again this week a few times. You've said in your heart, you know, and then there's all those I will statements. I, I will ascend to heaven. I'll exalt my throne. I'll sit on the mount of the congregation. I'll ascend above the heights of the cloud. I'll be like the most high. It, it sounds to me like the flesh. I'll have for me, I will gain for myself position and power and popularity, promotion and preeminence. Sounds like the flesh. But in context, it's not talking about a war between God and Satan. He's, he's addressing first the king of Babylon. This is what the king of Babylon was accused of saying. Now, is there prophetic insight of activity in, in heaven? Yes, most theologians and scholars would say absolutely. And I have, no, I have no argument with that. But there wasn't a war. If you read the text in Isaiah, it says all these statements. And then the next thing is, all God does was pronounce his demise. Didn't fight with him. He just said, okay, because you said all that, this is what's happening to you. Done. If you want to call that a war, okay. But it's not very impressive. There really was never... There really never was a, a chance or, or that the, the enemy, Satan never had anything that he could make war against God with, except just to rebel in his own heart. The war is also not between Jesus and Satan. And again, there, it, it appears in, in, 
and I'm not going to raise issue with, with those who, you know, a lot of times, especially around Resurrection Sunday, we, we paint the picture like there was this big war taking place at the cross. And, and I get that. And it's not totally wrong. But in all honesty, it, it really wasn't much of a war either. And if you understand the cross, um, Jesus wasn't there to fight Satan. Jesus was there as, a, as our attorney to, to justify the, the legal grounds. See, Satan had legal grounds to, at the point, moment of death, he had legal grounds to hold the soul of every human being in the grave. When the Bible talks about Sheol, that's what it is. It's that holding place. Whether you died, when you died, whether you were righteous or unrighteous, it didn't matter. You died, and there was no eternal atonement made for your sins yet. So Satan had legal grounds to hold your soul in the grave. He had legal grounds to, to keep you when a person died. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the power of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So he had law, the law, the law, the law God wrote. He had the law on his side. So the cross wasn't a war, a war so much as it was Jesus presenting a different case. Jesus who lived a sinless life. Jesus who now said, uh, give me the keys. Because you no longer have that legal ground. Because now anyone who comes to death by me, you can't hold them. That's why when Jesus rose, remember, graves broke open. The righteous dead came out of the grave. The righteous dead followed Christ. It says that they, they were, it's, this I, I can't even explain, but, and it'd be a little freaky to have been alive during that time, but they walked around the city and people saw and talked to their dead relatives. You understand, it wasn't so much a war. It was a legal transaction where Jesus set us free. He set us free. He delivered us from the curse of sin. He delivered us from the bondage of, of the enemy, the right of the enemy to keep us, to hold us. So now whosoever believes in me, not a war, but there, there is a war that it does declare victory. There is a war that we can look at. And it's not between Satan and God, and it's not between Jesus and Satan the war that we're talking about is the war we were raging, waging against God. That's the war that's been settled. That's the good news of the gospel. That our war with God can be over. That we can find peace with God and know His peace. Romans 8, 7 the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's what the flesh does. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. James 4.4. 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity? That means hostility. That means animosity. That means ill will. It means hatred, strife, opposition. 
It's enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We were at war with God. Whether, to whatever degree, to, if, if our lives were being lived just for ourselves, if that sin nature was running our lives, and it was running all of us at one point in time, sin puts us at odds with the Lord. Listen, the fact that at salvation, we have to accept his peace. The fact that at salvation, there's a peace agreement that is established between you and the Lord sort of proves that there was a war going on. And that war is settled, thank God. That war is over, thank God. We now have peace with God. And because we're at peace with God, we also then have the peace of God. We can live in peace. Even in a chaotic world, we can live in peace. Even when others come against us or circumstances turn out ways that we never thought could happen, we can still live in this place of peace. Because the war's over. And we have his peace. Second Ephesians says, Christ has broken down in his body the dividing wall of hostility and enmity that existed. And he created himself one new man, that's us, and declared peace to all who believe. That's the good news of the gospel. The war is over. We no longer strain and struggle with who God is. and We are now instead spiritually alive. We share his victory, the victory of the cross. But that victory has to be enforced in our lives because our old nature isn't gone. It's less powerful, hopefully, and growing less and less powerful in our lives, but it's not gone. The hard part is simply this, that there are, there are battles we still have to fight in this area. But the battles that I have to win are in me. I'm not at war with the world. Not primarily. I disagree with a lot of stuff the world's doing and, and, and going on. But the real battle, the hardest battles that I have to win, they're in me. They're not outside of me. They're not around me. They are in me. The battle between the spirit life and my old life. That's the real battle. The battle between the spirit life that I now have and the residue of the sinful life that I once had are in constant friction. And I have to win those wars. I have to win those struggles. That's why we're supposed to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily cycles in our life. We have to win those battles. If we're going to really know and walk into true freedom and an open relationship with our God, we have to win those battles. Now, fortunately, the Bible's not silent or unclear about those battles. And I'm going to, without making a lot of comment, I want to give you four things. 
just scripture. We're just going to go through some scripture that, that speaks to us about these battles. And, and hopefully through looking in the scripture, we can, we can see some things that maybe will help us in winning more, in, in, in building up our spirit man so that we're better equipped to, to deal with those battles that, that take place in us from time to time. Romans 6, 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So my first point is, you are what you think. You are what you think. French philosopher uh, Rene Descartes, uh, he, he's touted as the great statement, his most famous quote probably is, I think, therefore I am. And there's truth in that, except he, that wasn't original. Because way before he came along with it, there was this, this king who's named Solomon. And he had, he had wrote it first. He, says, he said it a little differently. He says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So, so nothing against Rene Descartes, but, but he was really plagiarizing. He, he got some props that maybe he didn't really fully deserve, but... Spiritual warfare, first and foremost, is not external. And we can see a lot of external nasty stuff around us that, that has to be dealt with. There's circumstances and situations that inflict themselves upon us that, that cause our heads to spin sometimes. But spiritual warfare at its core is not external. Does the devil have influence in the world? Yes, we know that. He's the prince of the power of the air, the Bible says. He has some control. He has Great influence. But the main influence he wants to have isn't just in the world, it's on your soul. He really wants to influence your soul. That's where, that's where this, this attack really comes. It, it comes to your soul, and the way he does it is through your flesh. By appealing to your flesh. So... That's where we start. We have to start realizing that, that the battle is in me. Okay? The, the battle is in me. That, that it, it, it's interesting. Think of the armor of God. Belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. Helmet of salvation. Gospel of peace. Right? Shield of faith. Even the sword of the spirit. Notice. These are, these are internal characteristics that equip us, that dress us, that make us able to do spiritual warfare. They're not physical external implements and tools and weapons. They are first in us. Even we can say, but the word of God, that's, that's, well, thy word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. These are internal characteristics that, that the Lord gives to us and builds in us. Because God knows that the spiritual warfare is first and foremost internal. It's, it's on the inside of us. So he gives us internal qualities and weapons that we can use. Now, in a backwards sort of way, there's an encouraging reality to that truth. The fact that the battle is in us is actually a little bit of good news. Because that means if it's in me, 
and I'm alive to Christ, I have full control of the outcome. Can you see that? I have full control of the outcome. Remember, one of the th- ways we described our, our soul last week was that God gave us this independent power. We, we're, we had a body. We were created as spirits. But he gave us a soul, and that soul has this independent power that, that can choose, that can move, that can, can operate. But that's good news because since this battle is in me and I have this soul that's in connection and communion with the Holy Spirit, I can win. I can win. See, if the battle's outside of me, I can't control all that. I can't control another person. I have enough trouble taking care of me. Right? I can't control you. I can't control the government. I can't control the the culture. I can't control any of that stuff. And if that's where the real battle is, I'm going to just always be getting beat up. But man, if it's in me and he's given me the weapons I need, I can win. That's good news. We we can win this thing. We, We can win over the flesh. Bible says... In the text we read, if we set our minds, see, it's all about your mindset. If we set our minds on the flesh, if we pay more attention to our flesh than we do our spirit life, then we're going to get beat up more than we need to. We're going to lose more battles than we should. None of us probably bat 100%, but, but our record can go up. We can have some better at-bat stats than what we've had. But we can't set our minds on the flesh. We have to change our mindset. And to set our mind on the spirit is life and peace. New way of thinking. The renewal of our mind. How does, what does Ro, or, yeah, Romans 12 say about how to not conform to the world? By the renewing of, of your mind. By thinking differently. 2 Corinthians 10 says that we destroy arguments and opinions that go against the knowledge of God, that keep us from hearing and understanding God. Those those opinions, those philosophies, those arguments, we can defeat them. How? But you got to take your thoughts captive. You got to take those thoughts captive and you have to hold them up to the obedience of the word of God, the obedience to Christ. And in doing so, you defeat those arguments that would lead you astray. You can win, but it all starts by recognizing, number one, the battle is in your mind. But that's okay, because your spirit's alive to the Holy Spirit of God. Number two, pick a side. Pick a side. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk in the spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Raises two questions. So we can spend a series just on those couple of verses, which we're not going to do. But it raises two quick questions. Number one, how well are you walking? We're instructed, 
Walk by the Spirit. How, how well are you walking? The word walk there means to be occupied with. To be occupied with. Occupied means to be engaged, uh, to, to have your attention um, engaged, and, and your energy uh, spent towards something, to take hold of, uh, to have possession of, to, to be, or to control, to, this, to be occupied. That's what our walk is. Because the reality is you can't walk in two directions at the same time. Jesus said that a man can't have two masters. You're going to love one, you're going to hate the other. Now Paul, when he wrote this to the Galatians, he had already written earlier in his letter a bit of a, a scolding. He said, you know, are you guys, are you guys foolish? Are you now going to be what began in the spirit? You're going to be perfected in the flesh? Are you going to say, Jesus, I receive your wonderful gift of salvation and then just go live any way you want? Are you going to say you have freedom but never walk in it? Are, are you so foolish to think that that's how it works? You got to walk this thing out. You got to be occupied with this thing. It's got to be on your heart, in your mind. It's got to be, it's got to be affecting your, your, your will and your choices and your feelings and your thoughts all of the time. There, there's a, this is a new life, which means there's a whole new way of living. So how well are you walking? The second question would be, are you being led? It says if you're led, verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And led there simply means led. Guided, controlled, directed, steered, routed, conducted, escorted, piloted, managed to be led. Walking is great. But sometimes you also say, it's good to say, I'm walking with Jesus. I'm walking with the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. Sometimes you also ask, not, am I walking? Am I, who's leading? You know, Pastor Jeremy told you that they got a little puppy in their home, a little addition to their family. And I've, I've been there, and, and I watch my two grandkids take turns walking the dog on the leash. And in all honesty, I'm not sure at any given point who's leading who. <laughs> and our lives with Jesus can be that way. We have him. He's in us. He's with us. And we're walking along, but man, we're tugging on the leash. Man, we're just going off in every direction where he's saying, come on, we're just a straight, narrow road. <laughs> Been there, done that. Bought the t-shirt. Yeah. It, it, it's happened. So we have to ask ourselves, am I, am I really being led? And the evidence, this verse tells us, the evidence that he, in fact, is, we're walking with him and he's leading us, is that you're no longer under the law. That means that as he's leading... On the other side of whatever that battle is, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no remorse, there, there, there's none of that. There's no fear, there's no depression, there's no sense of being defeated. Because the flesh didn't win. Because we walked with the Lord and let him, the Spirit of God, lead us. And he always leads us to the same place, to truth to righteousness, to freedom, to Christ-likeness. He always leads us to Jesus. 
So you got to pick a side. Not just one. You've already made the major choice. You've made a decision of whose side you're on. But that has to filter down to every situation and every step you take in life. It has to come down to, to just the practical, nitty-gritty way of how we live our life. Number three, check your wardrobe. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful, deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, you know, when, when you get dressed, perhaps the last thing or certainly one of the last things that you do is what? You, you check the mirror. You look in the mirror because it, it reflects back to you information about how you look. It ref, ref, reflects back to you if something's out of place, if something fits properly or, or not. If something has a, has a hole you didn't know or a smudge mark that you weren't aware of, you, you look in the mirror. Well, the Bible says we have a mirror as Christians in, in walking a victorious life. We have a mirror we can look into. The mirror is called the glory of God. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. See, that's what's unfolding. That's what's supposed to be transpiring inside of us. We come to him with unveiled face. That means we just come humbly. We come as we are. We come honestly. We come wearing whatever it is we're wearing. Maybe it's our last righteous thing. Maybe it's our last unrighteous thing. But we come unafraid before a loving father with an unveiled face. And what we see isn't us. We see the glory of the Lord. And if anything we come with doesn't align with that image, Paul says, take it off. It's not something you should be wearing. It doesn't fit you anymore. It doesn't look well on you anymore. It's out of style for you. Take it off and put on the new self. When you look in the mirror, you should see Jesus. When you look in the mirror, you should see his character, his nature, his kind of life growing and developing in you. So it's, it's, and it's not a hard task. It's, it's just a discipline we have to give ourselves to, to look in the mirror. If you, don't like, if you look and don't see Jesus, take it off. Don't wear it. That, that's my best advice to you. The last point. Be smart. Ephesians 4.27, a little later in that same chapter we just read, says this, give no opportunity to the devil. King James says, neither give place to the devil. The NIV says, don't give the devil a foothold. That means that your walk is going to be as straight or as crooked according to the opportunity, place, and foothold that you give to your flesh. As much as you entertain your flesh, that's going to direct how straight your walk is. How close you're following his lead. That's why the enemy always appeals to your flesh. He doesn't appeal to your spirit. 
He always appeals to the lower, lowest part of you and tries to gain influence in that way. We, we've got to be smarter because we already know what he's going to do. It's very clear in Scripture that the enemy uses the same script every time. It's, it's like Hallmark movies. How many watches a Hallmark movie and you're surprised at the end? Those who are old enough, it's like the old Elvis movies. Same script, same plot, same storyline. It's just one time he's a pilot, another time he's a motorcycle guy, the next time he's, you know, whatever. But it's the same story. And you, you always, you, can, you know the end at the beginning. The, the devil does, he, write, he uses the same script every time. Everything he does It's to get you to see something, then to want something, and then to take something. That's it. That's his plan. That's his strategy. That's what happened in the garden. Eve is there. Hey, hey, their little conversation. And it says when she saw it, she wanted it, so she took it. There's the story at the Battle of Ai, after Jericho, that great victory of Jericho. They go to this little podunk city that they thought this is going to be no problem. And they're defeated against this little disorganized army. They can't win. And they find out that it's because they were told going into Jericho, keep nothing. Take nothing for yourself. And there was one little guy named Achan who kept some stuff and hid in his tent. And because of that, the whole nation lost and couldn't be victorious. And when it was discovered, when it was uncovered what he had done, what did Achan say? Achan said, well, I, I saw it. I wanted it. So I took it. James says this, but each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed. See it. By his own desire, you now want it. And when that desire is conceived, you take it. It gives birth to sin. And sin always leads to death. to be smarter every time your flesh is one it's because somehow in that process you saw something you wanted it and you took it every time because the enemy only has one script he's not smart enough to write another one and we can interrupt that we can interrupt his script Jesus did that's what happened when he was tempted in the wilderness he interrupted the script Satan was doing everything he can to get him to want something, see something, to take something. But he couldn't even get off the first one. He couldn't get him to see something. He kept showing him these things. And every time Jesus said, no, no, you're looking at that wrong. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Word of God says. So he couldn't even get him to look at what he wanted him to look at or see it the way he wanted him to see it. So he didn't have to, he never got to the other steps but that same spirit that lived in Jesus the Bible says Jesus had the spirit without measure that same spirit lives in you and he'll give you all the wisdom you need he'll give you all the discernment you need he'll give you everything you need to live this life victoriously to not allow your flesh to have as big a mouth or as 
long a memory. The Spirit of God, as we walk with Him, let Him lead, grows inside of us. And as, as that new nature matures and grows, the old nature never fully goes away. We, we never, don't fool yourself, we never grow and get to a, some arrival point where we're beyond the capacity to sin. You won't get there in this life. But that capacity could become less and less and should be growing less and less as our spirit man grows more and more. I'm going to ask you to stand up. We want to close the service in a unique way today. I didn't want to just end the service with a prayer. And a week or so ago, Lilia texted me and says, hey, we have this song. She sent it to me. I listened to it a few times. And I had already heard it. And said, this is a, this is a great song. And knowing what I was going to be speaking about, I said, that, that's, that's for this service. It's a song. And you maybe have heard it too. It's, it, it's, the first line of it is, I speak the name of Jesus. And, and that's what we're going to do. I, I want you to take a moment. Just, just maybe bow your heads and, and just get... Get inside yourself with the Lord and identify, I encourage you, identify some area of your life where the flesh has a foothold. Identify something that you struggle with in your, with your flesh. And we all have those kinds of things. Don't get super spiritual on me. And this is just between you and God. No one's going to ask you to say it out loud. We're not going to break into small groups so you can confess your sins. None of that. This is just you and God. But this is how realistic and serious we have to be if we're going to grow in this walk with the Lord. Just identify. I struggle in this area of my flesh. It could be a behavior, it could be an attitude, it could be a thought pattern. You just, you identify it. And then it, it, it'll be very obvious as, as the worship team comes and they, they're, I've asked them to just pray this song over you. So don't sing. Lily will tell you when you can sing. There'll be a point at which you're allowed to sing. But right now, I don't want you to sing. I, I want this, just let the song minister to you, hear the words, but be in prayer. Be in prayer. Talk, talk to the Lord about that area of your flesh. Wouldn't it be nice to win? Wouldn't it be nice if, if we could leave and the flesh, is, the, the flesh is a little bit less powerful in us in that area? We're less likely to fall snare and trap to, to that thing again. That's what this moment's about. This is about a time of confession. It's a time of healing. It's a time of deliverance. That all of us have to go through regularly as we walk this thing out with Jesus. So let the song minister to you. And then we'll close our time in prayer. I just want to speak.